Now, as we open our time in God's Word this morning, if you haven't already done so, please take your Bible and open it to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12. And today, you guys know coming in, it's a beautiful day outside. Uh, they say the whole week is supposed to be like this. Uh, and if you find the right spot, you know, whether it's at the beach or in a park or something like that, and you kind of squint your eyes, uh, you, can, you can start to imagine in certain places of our world, you can start to picture what heaven's going to be like, right? You can, you can start to see something really beautiful. I mean, there are places, especially here in Orange County, right? There's a lot of beautiful places to be. But when you stop squinting your eyes and you open them wide and you take a long look into the news and into the school systems and you look at that decaying body of yours in the mirror and you look deep into your own struggles with sin and we live with our eyes wide open to what's actually here with us, you can see why Paul said in Romans 8, why the creation itself groans. It groans for something better, and we ourselves join that, groaning, looking forward to something better. But what exactly does a Christian look forward to? What should you be looking forward to this morning, you who have trusted in Christ? What lies ahead for you? This morning, this is going to be a sermon about a Christian's hope. Everything in the sermon hangs on the reality of Christian hope. What lies ahead? What you should expect to happen? As one person said, what you should dream about when you're awake. Our text for this morning is Romans 12, 12. It says this, Rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, and being devoted to prayer. If you have the ESV, it draws out the sense by saying, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, and be constant in prayer. So these are God-given directives for our lives. These are God, God's way of outlining responses that we should have, three responses to his love for us in the gospel. Now, to begin, I want to give you a short summary of these three phrases together because I want you to see as we begin how hope is what ties them all together. Without hope, they all fall apart. So take the first phrase, rejoicing in hope. What Paul is saying is that your hope, what you hope for in the future, you look at that, you hope for that, and that gives you joy in the present, right? We rejoice now because of what's ahead. And that joy and that hope that we have in the present helps us to endure afflictions in the present, right? Our joy is rooted in our hope for the future. It's not rooted in our circumstances. It's not rooted in our bank accounts. It's not rooted in our mortgage. It's not rooted in anything in our lives. This world is full of pain. But when you look beyond the world, when you look ahead, when you look out across the horizon, and you get that perspective of what God has waiting for you. That perspective is what helps you do the second phrase, which is endure in affliction. You can endure through anything with that. That perspective, that forward-looking sight is critical to the Christian life. It's critical to enduring anything that we as Christians face here. 
But how do you keep that perspective clear? How do you keep your lens unfogged? How do you keep the dust out of it? How do you keep a clear sight of what's ahead? That's the third phrase, prayer. Prayer is how you keep your perspective clear on God's love, on God's promises, and on the hope of the gospel. So a life of hope in this world of pain, as the sermon title says, is one where we do these three things. We rejoice in hope, we endure through affliction, and we pray a lot. Okay, so these three go together, but they all flow from the fountain of Christian hope. If you miss hope, you miss the text, okay? So fair warning, the sermon is going to be front-loaded big time on the first phrase, and so the outline might not fall in a, in a nice flow, but we're just going to focus on hope because it's essential, uh, and if John's flight gets canceled or delayed, maybe we'll do a part two next week and kind of dig into the implications of it, but we're looking for them to come back. Uh, today, hope is the most important thing. So now we come to the question, what is hope? What is it? If you follow our culture's use of the word, you're probably going to be off on the wrong foot, and you're probably actually going to misread your Bible and miss what God has for you in it. When we say we hope for heaven, is that the same thing as saying, I hope I don't get COVID? Are those the same? Is it the same thing? It's not. So now, I want to lead us into the biblical idea of hope with an analogy. I was racking my brain how to introduce us all to this, but in numerous places, the Bible talks about hope in the context of children, which I think is a good starting point. We have a lot of children in here. We were all children at one point, and parents are going to know what this is like, what I'm talking about. We can remember when our parents would do something like this with us, and we can see this played out, we who are parents in our lives. So my oldest daughter is about two and a half, right? And she's very easily pleased. But if I just go up to her and I say, hey, sweetheart, uh, I'm going to take you to the beach. And we're going to go out. It's going to be you and me. We're going to swim in the ocean. We're going to play in the waves. And then we're going to come out and we're going to dry off in our towels. And we're going to play with sand toys. And then we're going to eat yummy snacks that mommy made us. And we're just going to spend the whole day playing. It'll just be you and me, right? If I say that to her, if I give that to her, those words, what's she going to do? What's she going to do with that? She's going to hope for that, right? She's going to look forward to that. That's a picture in her mind. And even though it's not here yet, she's going to look for it and want it and expect it. And that is hope. There's two parts of hope in that analogy that I want to highlight because we see them in Scripture as well. First is a promise. Hope is always based on a promise. Um, I'm her father, right? In that instance, I've committed myself to bringing my daughter to the beach, right? I've made a promise. So she has good reason to expect it. But secondly, and this is really important, I think for us especially, is that it comes with a picture as well, okay? So it, it's, I'm painting a picture of the future for my daughter, right? I'm outlining what, it, what she should look at. The other part of hope is that she's going to see something in her mind that she doesn't see with her physical eyes. That is also essential to hope. It is using our imaginations the right way. It's tethered to something. It's not 
just living in what's imaginary, but it's literally imaging something in our brain. That's a gift of God that he gave us. As one person said, it would be dreaming while she's awake, right? In other words, it's hoping. And so to put those together, I think a pocket definition of biblical hope is to have a justified dream of what the future is, to have a justified dream of what's ahead, something that you have strong reason to look forward to and that you can actually start to see. Now, maybe dream sounds too squishy for some of you, uh, but if we cannot dream, we cannot obey this text. If we cannot do that, if we can only look with our physical eyes at the world around us, if we can only see this, if we can only see where we are, then we cannot have the joy that hope gives us. God made us all with the ability to picture what we do not see, and that is essential to hope. Now, for proof of that, Romans 8, 24 and 25 says, if we saw it, it wouldn't be hope, right? We hope for what we do not see. It's essential to hope, and it's also essential to faith. Hebrews 11:1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not what? Seen. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight right? Our God-given imaginations are good, and they should be informed with God-given promises. Romans 15, 13 says that. It says, now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, right? It's rooted in something. So before we take a closer look at the Christian hope, you can probably start to realize that this this idea is a huge difference from what we hear out in the world, right? The way the world uses hope. I hope the Bengals win the Super Bowl. I hope inflation stops eating my bank account. I hope Russia doesn't invade Ukraine. I hope there's not a long line in and out. I hope it's sunny next Saturday, right? We use it for all these things. And often our world is just wishing in the dark, like, yeah, hope that happens, right? But the weather prophets have been wrong before. They have prophesied falsely over our nation. And we should not be so easily fooled. There's no true certainty in them. As Paul would say, their hope disappoints. Right? Their hope disappoints. There's disappointment all over the place. Ephesians actually goes so far as to say, it describes unbelievers as, quote, having no hope, none, and without God in the world. So without God, there's no hope. So even, rewinding the tape, my promise to my daughter as her father is even limited, right? Because I'm a creature. I'm not God. None of us are God, right? I don't write the future. But Isaiah 46.10 says that God does write the future, that God has declared the future from the beginning, He's declared if it's going to be sunny next Saturday. He's declared if Russia will invade Ukraine. He's declared if there will be a long line in and out. He's the one in control of all these things. We know this. He's declared everything, but he hasn't declared everything to us, right? However, when he does give us something, when he does give us his word, that 
is grounds for our hope, our assurance, our confidence, right? That is justification for Christians to start dreaming about what's ahead. Psalm 130 verse 5 says, In his word do I hope. So we can rest all our hopes there. Scripture says, do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches or any of these things in the world, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things, right? Our hope is to land on him. So we look at Romans 12, 12, and it tells us to rejoice in hope, which is the first point. And now we can see two reasons for that joy. Point A, rejoice because your hope is guaranteed, It's going to happen. Whatever God gives you to look at in the future will absolutely happen. Nothing can get in the way of that. Every time you read your Bible and you read God say, I will, that should be what just ignites your heart with joy because it's going to happen. You have something guaranteed by God's own word. So where does he give the guarantee? Well, he gives it all over the place, but just in Romans, there's a critical one. We see many of them. But in Romans, we see God the judge has given us a guarantee by declaring the verdict of our destinies, right? Our justification, how it's going to go on judgment day when we all stand before God and all our secrets are laid bare. When we see him, what's going to happen? He's already made a legal declaration that in Christ, it is finished. Your sin, the punishment of all of your sins has been paid for, right? Your sins are forgiven. Christ has done everything necessary to remove God's wrath, that burden of wrath, that expectation of wrath from you. And he's provided you full acceptance with God. And that's what we are to believe. Romans 15, 13, may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, in believing the gospel. Romans 5, 1, Joe read it for us this morning, 5, 1 and 2 grounds a Christian's hope squarely on his justification. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there, but I'll also just read it here. It says, therefore, having been justified... By faith, having been declared righteous before God by faith in Christ and what he has done for our acceptance with God. And then he lists some benefits. Number one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, we've also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And number three, we exult in what? Hope. Right? Hope. As the song says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? It's built on Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the guarantee of our hope. The gospel is the foundation of all your hope. Paul even emphasizes that if you're in Romans 5, down in verse 8. He rehearses the gospel again. He says, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's the gospel. And then what's Paul's response, though? How does Paul respond to that? He ties it to hope. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. 
Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, the gospel is what gives us a guarantee of future hope. Christian hope is absolutely guaranteed. Your hope, as you trust in Christ, is a promise of God to you. Now, if you're an unbeliever here, as we've already seen in the text, if you don't have God, you have no hope. You will meet him one day. And your sins will still be on your shoulders. And God will look at you. And God will judge justly. And yet, this good news of the gospel is offered to you today. When you trust in Christ for your acceptance with God, when you trust that he lived for your righteousness, he lived the righteous life you were commanded to live but failed to, he did that while you were still a sinner. God was loving you before you even believed in him. And he went and died a death that he did not deserve to die, that you deserve to die. And he did that bearing the wrath of God for your sins in love. He took a view of all your sins and said, Father, charge it to my account. And that was an expression of his love. That's what you see when you look at the cross in faith. You see your sins there. You see your death, your punishment. In Christ, you have been crucified, right? But it doesn't end there. He lived for your righteousness. He died for your sins. And yet he rose again from the grave to give you hope of eternal life again, right? With him. So we exalt in hope. That's yours. That offer is yours freely to believe today. And I pray that you would. It is Christ who guarantees your destiny. God has declared it. But if you're a believer this morning, I think there's a really encouraging point here too, right? If we look at Romans 5 and we live and we are, we know we're justified, right? It assures us, I want you to be reminded this morning that your experience of God, your experience of salvation is not over. Like that is just, like you should, you should look forward and see a bright future. No matter what the world has, your experience of God is not over. It's just getting started. Paul literally says, I love his language. He says, this is the introduction. <laughs> this is your introduction to God. The assurance that your heart is clean. You have a clean heart. The assurance that you'll be welcomed at heaven's gates. The assurance that God Almighty loves you. That's the introduction to God. So it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, if it was five months or 50 years, there's a, a, a refreshing sense to know that you're just getting started to know the grace of God. Like it, it's, just, it's just beginning. There is an eternity of learning about God and enjoying his blessing ahead of you. It is beautiful, and we need to carry that with us. Your joy in hope is more than justified because in Christ, your destiny is to be more than justified. You're supposed to be glorified. But now we wrestle and yet we have that hope. And so Paul says, rejoice because your hope is guaranteed. 
And the second point, he says, rejoice because your hope is glorious. This is something else we can see from Romans. By this, I mean to say, uh, that's far too weak of a word even. I, I think it's literally just for memory, the G's, but it's, it's seriously more glorious than you could ever imagine. Romans 5.4 says plainly that having been justified, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. That's what we hope for. So you're going to know his strength in your life. You see it in little, little days, you know, different, different measures in your life. You're going to know his strength to help you in a way you've never dreamed. You're going to know his wisdom in guiding you through your life in a way that's so beautiful you've never seen it. I mean, you're going to know his love, the warmth and affection for you that God has. You're going to know that in a way that's beyond even what you could conceive of. It's bottomless. I mean, if we ask what will it be like, 1 Corinthians 2.9 describes it this way. It says, Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. It hasn't even been dreamed of. Like, he hasn't told you everything. <laughs> the Bible would be a lot longer if he did. We cannot possibly capture it all. But he does, and this is important, he does want you to press into those promises of what he promises you. He wants you to dive into that. That's why in Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Right? He's like, I want God to open your eyes. I want God to show you this. I want God to reveal himself to you. I want that. I pray for that. And that's, Paul prays, and that's a good reminder for me because I can't do that. None of us here can do that. God has to do that. God has to open your eyes to this. Paul says, though, I want you to see it. Like, I want you to dream about it. I want you to know it in your bones. I want you to know his love. And you can see his love in Ephesians 3.18. He prays again, and this is what he says. He prays that Christians, quote, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So he's praying that you would press into his glory. Press into things that you'll never get to the bottom of. Right? Even Christ now, in John 17, he shows us he's praying for you to be with him where he is so that you may see his glory that is what Christ prays for you. And so, stepping back for a second, as far as you can use this book to stretch your mind into what God has for you, as far as you can possibly go with it, you're just getting started. Because two verses later in Ephesians 3, Paul adds the reminder, he says, God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that you ask or think, right? It's awesome. So dive in, be encouraged that your best idea, the warmest idea of heaven is still far short of what he has for you.
So fix your hopes and dreams on God's promises, right? In Revelation, at the end of the Bible, God paints a small picture, it's very dense though, of the new earth, of what he has for us. He says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He says that will be a place where God himself will dwell with us. There will be no more crying. There will be no more mourning and grief. It says in that place there will be no more pain. Now, Jonathan Edwards, a pastor from centuries ago, he attempts to paint out a biblical picture of our hope in a book entitled, Heaven is a World of Love. He knows it's where we'll be, it's where God is, God is love, what will it be like? He's taking all these pictures of what we're called to be, and he just presents them purely for our consideration. I'm paraphrasing, I'm updating some of the language for us, but just listen to this. I just want to read this to you. And just be refreshed at how different this will be than what you're seeing in our world today. Jonathan Edwards describes heaven as the world in which the Lamb of God lives and reigns, filling it with the brightest rays of his love. He says it's a world where there is nothing to disturb or offend where the saints will find and enjoy all that they love and so be perfectly satisfied. He says, it's where there is no enemy and no enmity, but perfect love in every heart and to every being. Where there is perfect harmony among all the inhabitants, no one envying another, but everyone rejoicing in the happiness of every other where all their love is humble and holy and perfectly Christian, without the least impurity, where love is always shared to the full, where there is no hypocrisy but perfect sincerity, where there is no separation wall and no misunderstanding, no strangeness, but full fellowship among everyone where there is no division through different opinions or interests, but all shall enjoy each other in perfect prosperity and riches and honor without any sickness or grief or persecution or sorrow or any enemy to abuse them. What a haven of rest to enter after having passed through the storms of this world in which pride and selfishness and envy and hatred and arguments and vice are as waves of a restless ocean always rolling and often dashed about in violence and fury. What a rest to come to. And oh, what joy will there be to be brought to such a paradise as this. Here is joy unspeakable, joy that is humble, holy, and divine. Love, even on earth, is a spring of sweetness. But in heaven, it shall become a stream, a river, an ocean. And thus, they will love and reign in love 
in that godlike joy which such as eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has ever entered into the heart of man in this world. And thus, in the full sunlight of the throne, mesmerized with the joys that are forever increasing and yet forever full, they shall live and reign with God and Christ forever and ever. That is beautiful. So when Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, I go to prepare a place for you. He's preparing a place like that. Your sins, when you're there, I mean, right now you can look down at your hands and you know you're in the sanctuary of FBC. But there's going to be a day when that, that sense of reality will be the same. And you'll be able to look down. You'll be able to look at others and say, we're here. You're going to know that your sins are behind you forever. And that ahead is just glory with God. And it's going to be heaven, not because of efforts to achieve world peace or anything like that, but it's going to be heaven because Jesus himself will be there. None of those descriptions of love can ever exist apart from him. What do you think it's going to be like to stand and see him? We don't think about that enough. Revelation 22.4 says we will see his face. What is that going to be like? How's that going to go? How are you going to feel? And John says that it's that, seeing him, that will make heaven heaven. John says that one day, we who are sinners, we who are weighed down with sins and weaknesses and all of these things, one day we're going to be like Jesus because we will see him as he is. The Psalms say that those who look to him will be radiant. And so each one of us here who is saved... You know, we see each other, we live in community, we see our, our sin struggles, and we, we plod along in care group, we pray together, we do all these things. There's going to be a day when we see each other, husbands and wives and sons and daughters, and we're going to see each other, and we will all shine forth with the glory of God in unimaginable beauty. And it's going to be that way Forever. Because we'll see his face. And this is where predestination in the context of Romans actually becomes a very sweet truth rather than something to argue over only. All things work together for your good and your conformity to that glorious image of Christ. You know, we read about Christ and we see him and we say, man, I want to be like that, right? And Martin Luther said it well. He said, it's one of the fundamental tenets of the gospel that before you receive Christ as your example, before you even try to be like him, you must receive him as a gift. Right? You must receive his grace. You must receive the gospel. And yet, you will be like him. He will make you like him. That's in your future. And so Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice in hope. He says rejoice. It's actually in the plural 
in our text. Rejoice together. And don't you see how just this view of hope, an actual tangible view of hope, enhances our understanding of why Paul is saying, love each other. <laughs> like, why all of this is happening? Because that's where we're going. You think about the saints in heaven. What are they like? Like, how pure is their devotion to God? How high is their joy? All of that, if we see that, that's what we're being brought to. And that's what we're commanded along to as well in this world. Paul says rejoice, because that's where we're going. It's guaranteed, and it's glorious. But that's not everything that we're supposed to do with that picture. Paul gives two others. He says that this, this hope also helps us endure in affliction, endure in the present world. When we come back and land with our feet on this world, we need to know that hope also helps us with whatever hard times we're going through. I don't know what that looks like for you, uh, but in Christian counseling training, which we should all try to get at some point, uh, they say, you know, no matter what, if somebody comes to you and they have a struggle, always leave them with hope. Always. Like, that's the main thing. Like, we all need hope. Hope is the up. Like, if we don't have hope, we're hopeless. Like, we, we despair. But faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So we need to paint a picture of, of what God has planned for us. And that's essential to helping someone who's struggling, to helping all of us who are struggling. We need to give each other hope as we endure all types of things. Now consider two ways Romans encourages us in this. First, it encourages us with the truth that your afflictions will never separate you from Christ. Your hope is guaranteed. It's going to happen. Nothing can abort the mission. Paul looks at God's love in Romans, and he sees God causing all things to work, to work together for your good. In Romans 8, he stands back in verse 35, and he says, What then shall we say to these things? Verse 35, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? He was loving you even before you were saved. It's not even dependent on your salvation, your faith, rather. It's, he was loving you. He died for you while you were still a sinner. Who will separate you from the love of a sovereign Christ? He says, will affliction? It's the first one. And that's our word here. Will affliction separate you from Christ? Paul says no. Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? You can say that about everything in your life. Category, take inventory, even right now, of the hard things, the stressor things, the pain points in your life. Where's the tension of these things? And, and analyze that and, and see that that can never separate you from the love of Christ, even your own sin struggles. In all of these things, persecution, straining with sin, all doctor's visits, in all these things, God is with you and he loves you. And he set his love on you in Christ. And he will never stop loving you because he will never stop loving Christ. As a friend of mine said, even if persecution comes, all it can ever do is chase you to heaven. Right? Legislation in Canada. Joel's up in Canada now. He can be in prison for preaching certain parts of the Bible to certain people. Right? 
All that can do is boost him forward to heaven. Start a prison ministry, I don't know. Everything works together for our good. God has sovereignly designed all of our difficulties. John Owen says he's even designed the deaths of his godly ones. Like, death is something we still kind of fear, right? And yet God has designed exactly how he wants to bring you home. He's that sovereign. He's that good. He loves you that much. And so, yeah, our lives are stories. (laughs) They twist, they turn. There's bumps, there's challenges, there's villains. There's all sorts of things. Our, Our lives are stories, but they're not tragedies. They don't end with an oops. They don't end down. They they end well. And Paul's saying hope in God because your affliction can never separate you from Christ. Beyond that, we've already kind of touched on it. Affliction always serves you in Christ. Always, 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 always. With hope in the gospel, this is what happens. Affliction and pain, it actually serves to purify you. And it proves your character of what God has done in you. Romans 5.2 says, based on justification, faith in the gospel, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. But Romans 5.3 says, and not only this, but we also exalt where? In our tribulations, afflictions, same word. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. See, it all works towards that. Everything, even your sin struggles, when it comes to you, you should have confidence knowing that God is loving you in this and that he's bringing you to kindle your hope. That's why James says, we all know the the verse, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that this is being worked out to purify you, to perfect you. And so if if you're in the fire or a friend of yours is in the fire and they're a Christian, you can know that it's never a punishing fire. It can feel that way. You can feel like you're alone. But it's never that way. It's never a punishing fire. It is a purifying fire in the words of Scripture. God is working all of the tension in your life together in exactly this way because it is best for you. Difficult person, inflation, diagnosis, all of it. I remember a time a few years back when uh, I had a troubling medical diagnosis and I had to get blood work, I had to get ultrasound, I had to get a chest x-ray, I had to get all these things. I thought maybe I had cancer. And it was exhausting. I was so worried. I was just gripped by all of that. And looking at my wife, and just realizing, like, we might have two years together, you know? Like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And yet, I remember one time, it was so sweet. I was just up at night, and I remember just staring at the ceiling, and Romans 8 came back into my memory. And just to realize, to just re- rewrite the script in my own brain and say that all of this, all of this, in reality, none of this is an expression of God's hatred towards me. But to see him behind it, to see him behind everything, and to know that everything is an expression of his love towards you. I mean, that was so freeing. And that's the hope that's available to you in every difficulty. Even your suffering is actually an expression of God's love to you in Christ. 
And like Job, you can endure all things. It's the same word. You can endure all things in hope. Remember Job? God took everything from him, right? And he suffered not because of his sins, but because he was righteous, right? And yet, Job said, in my flesh, I will see God. He knew that no matter what happened, God's promise was true. The psalmist says, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's my portion. I will have him no matter what. So affliction never separates us. We will always have God. And it always serves us in the, way, the same way that the wind is at your back and serves a sailboat. Right? Everything is pushing us forward. So rejoice in hope. Endure in affliction. And lastly, pray. Pray. Paul says, be devoted to prayer. As we said in the beginning, prayer is like that lens. When you put on those glasses, you see life differently. It keeps your heart in hope. It keeps your perspective of God clear. And I want to highlight two encouragements for you here. They're very simple. But the first one is God's attitude towards you. If you have a difficult time praying, or if you are down, or you are discouraged, remember God's attitude towards you. I know oftentimes we can try to feel like we need to grade ourselves and be like, I'm not praying enough. I'm, I'm not, you know, just, we're just identifying all of our weaknesses, which are real and they're there, but we need to have a God-first logic to everything. Think of his character. I've been in seasons of prayerlessness, and I've been in seasons where prayer felt like a burden, right? Someone comes into a pulpit and thunders away at how you should pray more, and you you start setting reminders on your phone, and you start doing all these things, and yet after a while, you forget the reminders, and then you get really guilty, and you don't pray as much, and then you spiral downwards in your heart. But in those moments... You need to see the big picture and remember that when God tells you to pray, it's because he is for you. Romans 8.31. So prayer is not a burden. Prayer is a burden lifter. That's actually why he he gave us prayer. Prayer doesn't have to exist. He could have just left us here, uh, but he didn't. It's a burden lifter, and that's why God says to pray. And when he does that, he says to cast all your anxieties on me, right? Because I care for you. That's his attitude. He cares for you. And he wants to hear from you today. He does. Prayer is not, the picture of prayer is not you banging on the gates of heaven until your fists start to bruise. Right? It's it's a picture of you being welcomed into heaven with the open arms of Christ who commands you to come to him and to to seek grace, to seek help for your time of need. That is a pure picture of prayer. And that will help us pray. And secondly, not only God's attitude, but God's abundance for you. As one man said, again, with a God first look at prayer, I think it's very easy to approach prayer and just say, I have a need, therefore I'm going to pray to God. My need is the ground of it, and then I pray to God, right? That's how a lot of us think about prayer. But one man said it this way. He says, you don't pray because of your needs, right? 
Lots of people have needs and they don't pray. You pray to God because of his abundance to meet your needs. Right? That's there first. If he didn't have an abundance of grace for you, you would never pray to him. Right? If you were just on your own, you wouldn't pray. But because God actually has grace for you, that's why you pray. Because God is gracious, you can pray with thanksgiving. Because God is merciful, you can pray and seek mercy. Because God has blessings for you, you can pray for blessings. It's him first. It's his wealth of grace that should motivate your prayer. It's because it's in line with this hope that he kicked off with the gospel before you were even saved. So you pray for everything. You pray believing. You pray biblically. You pray to keep your mind joyful in hope. This is a life of hope in a world of pain. You're rejoicing not in our circumstances here only, though you can enjoy a good gift, a nice day at the beach or something. You can do that. But your joy is rooted somewhere else. You know, Jonathan Edwards, when he was, his life was basically collapsing. He was getting kicked out of his church for being faithful, and people were just turning on him. But someone who was there, they looked at him and they penned this. They said, he looked as if his joy was out of the reach of his enemies. Right? Because where was it? It was in their hope. It was in heaven. It was, it was with Christ. And the enemies can never touch that. This is a life of hope in a world of pain. We can endure all these things, and prayer helps us stay fresh on that. So I want to end with Paul's words again in Romans 15, 13. Paul says, Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have opened the floodgates of grace to us. Lord, all of these things, all of the, the pain in our life, all of the, the grievances, all of the sins that we see, all of these things, Lord, in Christ, you make them serve us. It's not in anything we have ever done, but we are just sitting here watching your grace unfold. So, Lord, help us to have hope. Help us to take hold of this. Lord, open our eyes even through the week as we begin to call these things to memory. Lord, these fundamental truths. We pray that you would help us. Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would know the hope of our calling, that you have not called us this far to leave us here, but, Lord, you are calling us all the way home. Lord, that those whom we have, you have justified, you will glorify. Lord, that's what's ahead of us. So help us to, to breathe that air in, that fresh air of heaven, of what's ahead for us, Lord, as we read your word. Help us to see, to picture what you have for us, to dive in with our imaginations, guided by scripture, and Lord, to be confident in your promises. Lord, we pray that you would do this. We pray this for the glory of your name in our church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.